The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. In traditional Civil War historiography, for many years after the war, the role of women was largely ignored. For another 50 years, women were treated only in the exceptional case. Clara Barton, Belle Boyd, perhaps Mary Lincoln for some mean-spirited comic relief. By the late 20th century, Serious scholarship came to grips with the issue of Southern women and their loyalties in books by Drew Faust, Catherine Clinton, Jackie Campbell, and many others. Today, it is finally the turn of working-class Northern women, subject of the book Army at Home, Women and the Civil War on the Northern Homefront, by our guest today, Judith Giesberg, on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Answer the President's call to service. As an AmeriCorps member, I know that Americans everywhere are helping each other, showing strength of character. As a Senior Corps volunteer, I know that Americans are showing kindness and compassion. As an AmeriCorps member, I see plenty of American spirit and enthusiasm. Together, we make America strong. Together, we make America great. Find out how you can serve at nationalservice.org. It's your world. It's your chance to make it better. Apply online at nationalservice.org. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you this afternoon, a Friday in September 2009, from the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, the noisy Brewster Building where crews are redoing the, uh, uh, the, the joints between the bricks, apparently, one by one with maximum impact on class schedules and teaching, but no matter, we move ahead regardless. Um, and though we come to you from the Brewster Building, this is not a production of East Carolina University, and I don't speak for them, they don't speak for me. I'm sure our guest likewise will speak not for her institution, but for herself, as happens every week here on Civil War Talk Radio. Well, this week uh, we're in our in the fall semester of 2009, a new season of the show, and uh, many people, I'm sure, have been waiting with bated breath to find out how the new uh, new season has opened for the Greenville Stars uh, girls U14 soccer team that I mentioned to you last week. And I'm happy to report that the Stars won their first game three to two, a thriller over the team from Roanoke Rapids, where there's something in the water because the girls there are much larger than ours. Or maybe it's something in the water here, I'm not sure. 
but nonetheless with superior play and uh, uh, conditioning, they were able to hold on for an exciting win. Uh, this week it's Washington, little Washington as they call it around here, Washington, North Carolina, not Washington, D.C., as the opponent of the Greenville Stars, and we'll keep you up to date on that next week. Returning to the era of the Civil War, we uh, would like to thank everyone who, as always, has sent in any donations to help obtain books for the Library of Civil War Talk Radio to help us find new authors to, uh, to talk with. If you send $20 to the PayPal address civilwartr at aol.com, uh, ask for a copy of Did Lincoln Own Slaves? Another Frequently Asked Questions about Abraham Lincoln or a copy of All for the Regiment, The Army of the Ohio, 1861-62, and I'll be happy to send either one to you. Uh, the contribution is not tax-deductible. Civil War Talk Radio is not uh, a charity. It's run uh, for, for our mutual benefit, yours and mine, but uh, but not not for any official uh, uh, educational reason, so uh, it's, it's not a tax-deductible thing, but uh, welcome nonetheless. Well, today uh, today is September 18th. Yesterday was the 17th, uh, recognized as Constitution Day, a somewhat made-up holiday as far as I can tell, but also, of course, the day of the Battle of Antietam, uh, but not only the Battle of Antietam, as we'll, we'll talk about uh, later this hour, uh, and in fact, that's as, as good a uh, chance to enter as any uh, to talk with our guest today, uh, Dr. Judith Giesberg from Villanova University. Uh, Dr. Giesberg, are you there? I am. Uh, Congratulations the on the uh, beginning of your um, what sounds like it's going to be a very successful soccer season. Well, thank you. It has been already because we were one and seven or oh and oh seven and one last spring. So uh, one victory gets us off to a much better start. Uh, thank you uh, for for that uh, that support. Um, uh, as we talk, just to uh, move things along, may may I call you uh, Judith or Judy? Oh, please, you go by? Judy, please. And and please call me Jerry. Uh, uh, Great, it saves lots of time. Um, so you're at Villanova University. I am. I'm coming to you from the suspiciously quiet St. Augustine Center building in the middle of campus on a Friday afternoon. The sun is out, and it, apparently all the undergraduates are off doing things other than writing papers. <laughs> that The library is a deathly place on Friday afternoon <laughs> around here. Although I'll say this year, the uh, the term began with the library closing at 5 o'clock on Friday and on, on Saturday and Sunday as well, uh, and not promising to have 24-hour uh, hours during exam week as it normally does because of the, the budget crisis here in North Carolina. Oh, and no. there was an uproar from uh, uh, students as well as faculty. Uh, many people have schedules where they can't get to the library during the day. Right. Students. So I'm happy to report, uh, listeners will be happy to hear, that the administration dug deep and found some money to give the library its normal, reasonable hours. Uh, but they haven't restored our travel funds, our research funds, uh, many other things that we need very right, much. Right, right. I'm guessing you're in the same boat there. We are. We um, we have had a second year of a hiring freeze now and salary freeze, and um, the library is still functioning. But there are other ways. Um, the university is obviously cutting back, tightening its belt. 
it, it's uh, it's a tough situation everywhere. Every week, uh, uh, I, I talk to folks, uh, and, and maybe half the authors on the show are, are university affiliated, and uh, the story is the same everywhere. The other half are not, though, and, and uh, I imagine you encounter this as well uh, when you tell people you've written a book uh, dealing with the Civil War, uh, you find a lot of people in the general public who are interested and maybe even have thought about writing their own book. Uh, is that your experience? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I always find um, enthusiastic audiences, um, in particular just out in, um, in, you know, in Philadelphia and in um, cities throughout the state, um, people who have... Um, thought long and hard about what you know these topics too they don't come to it um lightly they've people are are very enthusiastic and and want to talk to you about their projects and writing these books and i don't know that all fields are like that (laughs) i'm I'm, I'm forever grateful for that kind of that level of enthusiasm and um energy that you that you find talking to to folks about what you do now what what got you interested in a civil war topic uh, for this book well, you know, when I um, I started a graduate school, I thought I was going to study um, uh, colonial period, and then um, I found I gravitated toward the Civil War historian who uh, was teaching at Boston College at the time, who's now retired, and um, and so this project for for this book is actually what I wanted to do for my dissertation was really try to you know roll up my sleeves and and find out what working class women's experiences were. On the home front, and I'm forever grateful to my dissertation advisor for telling me that it was too hard of a project to do as a graduate student. That I should try to do something that was a little bit more, um, you know, manageable in in a you know two or three year period. Um, so he advised me. Um, that's Tom O'Connor. He he's a, a historian of Boston and um, teaches the Civil War classes at Boston College. Um, and told me instead um, encouraged me to, to 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 pursue the sanitary commission, which was another idea that I had at the time, and um, and I knew at the time that there were papers, and I knew where they were, and it sounded like something that was a manageable project, and he steered me in that direction, and um, it was a good idea. But um, this is the project I I had wanted to do after taking classes with him, so now I've come back to it, and I'm and. And it did take a lot longer <laughs> than the first one, so I think it was good advice. That, that often happens. I recall my first uh, dissertation proposal to my advisor. His response was, that sounds like a good second book. Yeah. <laughs> uh, why don't you take something a little more narrowly defined for a first book? And, and uh, he was, of course, right about that. Now, uh, well, the, the subject of this book, uh, Women in the Civil War on the Northern Home Front, there is, uh, as I alluded to briefly in the introduction, there's a historiographical tradition uh, going back many years of writing about women in the Civil War, but it tends to select uh, uh, the most colorful and interesting cases, usually uh, middle or upper middle class uh, white women who have done something uh, notable. And, and uh, I wouldn't say it's a tokenistic approach necessarily, but it uh, it certainly doesn't uh, address the the, uh, the the experiences of most women, just as as you have been writing about the war itself for many years. Authors wrote about generals and uh, politicians, and not so much about the experience of the common soldier. That has certainly changed in, in the last fifty years. Oh, yeah. A lot about soldiers, 
but not so much about the wives and mothers uh, and sisters they left behind. Uh, you're trying to do that here. Uh, why has it taken so long? Well, it's a really good question. Um, you know, when um, when I started to to study the sanitary commission, started to read. You know, it's it's when divided houses had just come out, and you know, and there was a real um, new energy to think about gender and and, and the war, um, and. And books came out that did, I thought, did a great job um, looking at, uh, there's some really great work that's been done on, on Southern women, and it's not exclusive to, to elite white um, women in the South. It's actually much more, uh, you know, much better at, at getting at um, the, the lives of a variety of women on the South. And then, um, but the you know there were sort of two very unparalleled trajectories developing after divided houses. On the one hand, um, the women who who uh, the people who published essays in that collection, who who were looking at northern women, really focused as you just suggested on uh, women who wrote their memoirs or who were otherwise recognized for their work after the war. Um, you know, in collections like Frank Moore's collection on, on Civil War women. Um, and then a very different um, trajectory for Southern women, which really tried to get at, you know, the hardships of life on the home front and, um, uh, and you know, who, who um, cast a much wider net looking at the experiences of former slaves, of poor whites, of displaced peoples, um, you know, uh, and, and, and just the... The, the kind of hard scrabble um, experience that that was Southern women's lives during the war. Um, so I, you know, I, I watched it unfold, and and um, I, I mean, I assume that in part um, the unevenness of the scholarship um, uh, reflects um, Southern historians who focused on the interactions between. You know, they've they've gotten to the average civilians' experiences because, you know, they're um, looking at life um, under occupation, you know, so this is people who came in contact with the, the Union Army, and in, in that way they enter into um, historical sources um, uh, because they were either um, being, um, you know, they were uh, part of the uh, urban and rural areas that were being occupied, um, where Obviously, in the north, there's not that um, parallel experience. So, um, I, that would be one way I would imagine that, that has shaped one thing that has shaped that um, unevenness um, is that we, you know, that civilians sort of enter in the picture in the south because of their contact with and their conflict with um, uh, the army, um, armies, I should say, both north and, and you know, Union and Confederate army. Um, and in the North, because there is not that parallel experience, there's, uh, there was less, um, the, you know, there were f- fewer examples of them entering into that, those sources. Well, you use the, the, the title of the book, Army at Home, you take from a very evocative quote uh, from 1862 about how the, there's the army in the field to be supported, but we also need to support the army at home right. uh, that, that grow the crops and so on. Uh, but of course, as you note, that arm, that quote is actually uh, from a southerner referring to right. the southern civilians. There, are, I got the impression reading this that this was a a, a struggle in some ways uh, uh, with sources. Uh, there are a lot of places where you uh, have to uh, say we we can assume or perhaps or, or right. this, that, that 
the northern women really are, uh, they've, they've been invisible historically, and, and part of it is they just didn't leave records. Right, right, yeah. And, and you know, um, and when we're looking at, for instance, um, the displaced women uh, who I really wanted to, to know more about their um, their experience in the North. They're not, uh, you know, these are not sort of the um, caravans of women um, uh, leaving um, southern cities in, you know, in, in advance of occupying soldiers. These are, are women who are sort of slipping in and out of urban areas in the North and showing up in um, at the desks of, of, of uh, aid societies or um, almshouses or uh, other institutions, anti-Pelham institutions. Um, so they're extremely difficult to find. And 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 you know, and I suspected at first that what I would find, I would find them in in um, uh, in prisons and another, you know, and and I would find um, uh, legal records that you know were, gave me some indication of where these women were or um how these women were surviving how they were sustaining themselves but those turned out to be very difficult to find um uh you know um most of the um it, most of those kinds of records are either have either never been cataloged or have been hopelessly misplaced at least from what i could find looking in boston and um philadelphia um, so, um, uh, but then I uh, um, started looking, started turning over a lot more stones and found that there were, um, uh, that some cities did create institutions simply to, um, to take care of the influx of these um, displaced peoples. And that, that, that encouraged me to think that it was possible to at least begin to understand the experiences of, of um, of displaced peoples in the north, but it is, um, but it's all fragmentary, as as you suggest. So we can only know, um, can only read what it is that they're that the uh, aid society um, people are taking down. The agents of the aid societies are taking down writing in their um, in their um, books, and and we can only you know sort of see these women filtered through the eyes of. Uh, middle-class um, aid society workers. Um, so it is very difficult, and it is, and it is, very, is only suggestive. I hope that um, we can continue to find more um, sources like that and, and get a better sense of what it was like to have your husband enlist and then have to scramble, really, to keep your children and your family together and keep your home. Um, I hope we can still find out, find more well, I, I suppose there's uh, obviously the systemic problem that, that uh, wives and, and mothers and, and the people at home treasured the letters they got from the front, right. uh, that limited contact with their missing men. And, right. and while the men treasured the letters they got from their wives, they couldn't necessarily carry them with them. Right, right. Uh, so we just don't have those those right. letters. Right. It's very. It's still so. I. I. It's still so exceptional to find. Um, letters going both ways. That whenever I hear of you know of of a small cache of these letters, um, I put everything aside and <laughs> and, Off and you go, go to, to get see them. them because they're really unusual. They are that. We're going to take a short break now. We'll come back in just a moment. We're talking with Judy Giesberg about the Army at Home, Northern Women in the Civil War today on Civil War Talk Radio. 
the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. September 17, 1862 is a date known to every student of the Civil War for the bloodshed at the Battle of Antietam. But on the same day, more than 70 women and girls were killed in Pennsylvania. We'll find out how and why when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. It's a wake-up call. It's time to get serious about preparation and to understand that the threat is very real. This is a message from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, recorded by Roger Kilfoyle, New York City firefighter. The topic, getting serious. It's irrelevant where you live or how many people live in your community or other variables like that. It's, it's America. America's the target, not just New York. We know there are some positive things that you can do to better prepare yourself and your family. It's simple steps to prepare yourself for events that may be out of your control. So you know, having these little supplies together, you can prepare for problems that may happen. Learn to be prepared at www.ready.gov or call for a free brochure 1-800-BE-READY that's 1-800-237-3239 a public service message brought to you by the Ad Council you're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Today I'm talking with Judith Giesberg, author of Army at Home, Women in the Civil War on the Northern Home Front. And we've been talking about the difficulty of recapturing that story of the women at home on the, the Northern uh, Home Front, not just the, uh, not so much the, the middle class, upper class women who might have uh, kept journals and left diaries and written letters, uh, maybe written their memoirs, but the, the working-class women for whom uh, written language was perhaps more of a struggle, whose letters could not be preserved by their soldier husbands because they were off uh, fighting for their lives in Tennessee or Virginia. Uh, and, and there really is a, a difficulty uh, in recapturing that story. Uh, Judy, I thought it was a, a brilliant stroke to introduce your, your chapter on the uh, what you call the displaced women, the ones who, who are, are trying to keep uh, keep their household economy together without uh, the man of the house around, uh, uh, to use uh, the, the single displaced woman who every Civil War student actually has heard of, mm-hmm. uh, of course, the widow Bixby, mm-hmm. um, known to Lincoln uh, scholars, uh, well, to everyone, really, for her famous letter that... Uh, uh, was used in saving Private Ryan, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the, the woman who lost her five sons. Lincoln scholars have argued back and forth uh, since the days of uh, uh, William Barton and uh, then Michael Burlingame and others. Uh, did Lincoln write it? Did someone else write it? Did right. they write it? But you, you don't really care who wrote it. You care who got it. And you yeah. tell us a little bit about uh, Mrs. Bixby. Can you tell us something? 
Yeah, you know, I, I, um, I, I find her case to be fascinating for, for so many reasons. Um, I was introduced to her, too, because she, you know, um, her, her reputation continues to be a matter of much debate, um, in addition to the authorship, of course, of, of, of the letter um, and the origins of the original, which, of course, has, you know, um, uh, mystified um, historians um, ever since the, the letter uh, disappeared, but um, but um, what I what I've found fascinating about her um, uh, is just how readily she um, becomes a secondary of secondary interest in 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 all of these conversations about well did he write it did somebody else write it did you know what happened to the letter um, but uh, but here, there's Bixby right? um, who is a very compelling person in her own right and who you know. Um, uh, who I think speaks to a, a, a universal experience of war, and that's loss. Um, yet um, uh, historians, you know, it's been uneven the way um, uh, historians have have handled her. I mean, um, the first um, historians you mentioned, Jerry, um, uh, did a lot of the, the hard spade work, if you will, looking for how many, you know, how many of her sons actually. Um, uh, enlisted and how many of them uh, uh, actually died, um, and, uh, and 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 that, and I guess the the jury is still out on on whether how many sons she actually lost in the war and how many of them deserted and survived the war or potentially died as as prisoners of war. Um, but uh, the controversy about her um, uh, began almost immediately when she received the. Uh, when she re- when the letter was um, published in uh, the Boston newspapers, her the townspeople immediately started to pick apart her story and her character, and suggested that she was unworthy of of the president's attention. Um, and and the rumors, of course, started immediately as well about whether or not she was really loyal. If in fact her loyalties were not with the union at all. Um, whether or not she ran a brothel, and uh, just the whole gamut of uh, gossip started to circulate around Lydia Bixby. And, I, and uh, interestingly, of course, when uh, she you know, lives out the rest of her life rather anonymously and dies a very anonymous death and, and um, uh, obviously didn't benefit um, materially from the letter, and, and certainly her reputation didn't um, uh, didn't certainly didn't benefit from the attention she got. Um, and then histori- when historians picked up the letter again in the early 20th century and started to talk about it, they questioned her and her you know her um, um, patriotism, her loyalty, even though she did have you know five sons who enlisted. Um, but they took for granted all of the um, rumors that circulated around her, even repeating them um, uh, in modern day treatments of of, of Lincoln um, and the letter, you you, you you can on occasion find uh, reference to her uh, immorality and, or at least you know the, the repeating of the rumors and questioning that I thought was um, fascinating. So I thought she was a a, um, a good place to start if we we think about how we've forgotten. Um, we've forgotten women, um, and by all accounts, right, when you have, you know, that many sons who enlist, I think at least we, she deserves a little bit more serious attention, uh, whether or not it turns out that 
the claims that she made or others made for her um, were um, all uh, we're able to confirm them all. I think she's an interesting person to think about when we think about recovering the lives of of working class women. Well, when uh, I mean Lincoln scholars have, have say repeated bad stories about her. Uh, there's a tradition of writing a lot of bad things about uh, Mrs. Lincoln as, oh, as yeah. well, um, and that, that's still sort of active debate. Uh, and one can argue some of it is just traditional misogyny. Some of it is is uh, uh, just repeating stories. Right. But with with Mrs. Bixby, uh, as you point out in your book, the uh, people begin talking about her immediately, including uh, other women, middle class, uh, upper middle class women. Right don't like that she has written to the governor. Right. What, right. What's wrong with writing to the governor? Right, right. Um, well, I mean, I think it seems... It, um, I, I think that the, the, the fact that she gets this kind of public attention is certainly flies in the face of, of the sort of um, expectation um, that, you know, that the experience of mothers and wives of soldiers is supposed to be, you know, in, middle class, in the middle class mind is supposed to be uh, something that women, you know, the women are supposed to suffer in silence. And, and, and certainly the, um, um, you know, the, the uh, loyal publications that were circulating around at the time liked to contrast Northern women's quiet sufferance, suffering with Southern women who they often characterized in the Northern press as being unwomanly and being overly um, expressive of their loyalties and, and, and expressing them in public in an, in an unfeminine kind of way. So there is this kind of expectation that the North women were quiet about their loyalties and, 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 and their suffering, and they didn't seek public attention. Um, so to some extent, she sort of you know, becomes, in, in many people's minds, um, uh, a she-devil, uh, you know, in that she's asking for something that others have not asked for. Somehow she stepped out of her place. And it seems like that's, that's how she gets turned into this lightning rod, if you will, um, uh, for resentment for from the middle class women who arguably at the beginning stepped in to help her, uh, but once the um, you know once the public's attention was drawn to her, um, so was their scrutiny. Well, the uh, th- that really echoes a theme that, that comes in every chapter of this book, and you talked about people stepping out of their place. Uh, the war puts people in places that they weren't accustomed to being, or that others weren't accustomed to seeing them. Right. Uh, in, in all kinds of contexts. And one that I mentioned between the segments there is, is uh, the event of September 17, 1862. Right. Uh, tell us about that. Um, as you suggested, right, um, um, you know, most people in the North were, were following uh, news from Antietam and um, women working at um, the arsenal, uh, U.S. Army arsenal at Allegheny, Pennsylvania, uh, went to work as usual that um, morning, and then around two o'clock or so, when they um, the women were supposed to um, go and receive their pay, um, an explosion uh, ripped through the uh, factory, through the arsenal, um, and uh, reverberated really throughout um, uh, the the city. Um, and of course, people in Pittsburgh. Um, 
assumed the worst, right? Assumed that they were, um, this was a part of a Confederate invasion. Um, they thought they were under um, attack. So they rushed to the sound of the, of the explosion. And, and once they arrived, um, they uh, arrived in time to see the building on fire and uh, women and young girls running from the building with their clothing on fire and um, and other you know the remains of women scattered throughout um, the uh, general area around the arsenal and it was in in many ways in my mind it seems you know uh, one of the more vivid ways in which um, the war really comes home in the north in a way that I think maybe we haven't quite um, come to terms. Completely with, uh, you know, for um, people in Pittsburgh, it was quite a ghastly scene to see these young girls um, riddled with um, uh, shells and other material of war that they were producing, and and it it was a scene that seemed to me that was not um, absolutely unlike a scene unfolding um, at Antietam Creek, um, not too far away. But but different in that the uh, uh, the bloodshed at Antietam and and you you talk later in the book about how the photographs right uh, the Gardner photographs bring right. home the, the bloodshed of Antietam right and and that's horrifying enough but here it is uh, in three dimensions in full color uh, the actual violence uh, on, on people's doorstep and and right. more than that uh, it it's that it, it is women and young girls uh, yeah. it is not soldiers who. Uh, who know what they're in for, who who experience the most you know, horrible you know, casualties. Right. But that's that's what war is, uh, as, right. as uh, Ambrose Bierce would say. Um, right. Not so for, for the, these munitions workers. Uh, right. The, the, it, it, it's still horrifying to a modern audience, uh, the description of, of the, the hoops left from the hoop skirts. Uh, right. Uh, that had burned away just the steel, charred steel, right. who, who right. human yeah, remains, shoes, or right, yeah, yeah, and and um, and 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 the the way in which the townspeople pointed fingers at each other afterward um, really suggests that it was a, it was a, a really a difficult scene to process, um, as you say, because this is not what um, you know. This is not a, this is not a. a, a a scene of, of war. This is not what you would expect to see, but it's, um, but you know, it's something that that uh, came home to to the residents in a, in a shocking way. And, um, sorry, and the fact that the women are there in the first place also is is uh, is part uh, right. of a larger story. The whole breakdown of the free labor system or the transformation of the free labor system in the North. Um, Right. Women don't work outside of the home in the middle class family. Right. 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 And and um, uh, yeah. And you know. And I think uh, interestingly, we were just talking about this in my Lincoln class last night. We were talking about free labor and, and the, the, the ways in which that you know that um, whole ideology is is based on um, a careful um, ignoring of of you know, of women's labor, um, not only that the work that continued to be done in middle-class homes um, by those women who were supposed, you know, supposedly not working, but the real work that was still being done by wage laborers, both men and women, and they're clearly, um, these women were clearly an example of that. And, you know, and interestingly, too, this is kind of a family affair. These women go to work in these arsenals, at least in the Allegheny case, and, and I think in, in, in maybe in Watertown as well, they, they go to work um, often with 
um, you know, a mother and daughter or a father and daughter, um, they, you know, they, 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 they do come in family units, suggesting that there's some continuity between the ways, you know, the ways in which workers work, you know, during the war than, than you know, as, as they had done in, the, you know, the textile factories earlier in the, earlier in the century. And, and you mentioned the Watertown Arsenal uh, outside of Boston. The, the, uh, this is not the only place where this happens. There's a fire in, in a Washington Arsenal, I believe. Yes, yes. Um, and, and then uh, um, and that's a little later in the war. And then um, in, 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 in Watertown, um, the uh, way in which those, um, that's, that arsenal enters into the book is... Um, there's an investigation of that arsenal. There are um, charges of mismanagement of the arsenal, and there's charges about the um, uh, Democrats who were employed at the arsenal, and their loyalties are drawn into, you know, are brought into question. And um, and then there's an investigation, and they find, in fact, at Watertown, um, uh, not unlike what happened, what happened at Allegheny, and and also what happened at Washington, is that there's, a, you know, there's experimenting going on at all of these arsenals. Uh, which is part and parcel of you know of the way in which the the war machine makes progress during the war. But the women came to see these experiments being done at the arsenals as 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 dangerous and inappropriate. Um, and I think in part they they did this because they you know they could read in the news but they read in the newspapers about explosions at other arsenals and then said you know well we have some of that same thing going on at our arsenal and maybe there's some dan- you know that maybe it's, it's there's a potential for a similar kind of explosion or similar da- similar um, fires happening at our arsenals. So it's kind of a you know what I find was interesting about this is that there's on one hand clearly you know it's those experiments that are being done and you know uh, at the arsenals there are really important for the northern war machine. At the other uh, on, on the other hand, there's this kind of sense that you know that 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 women who are working at the arsenal should be safe. Um, and that's what comes, you know, comes to a head in this Watertown Arsenal investigation. That uh, if it, well, you contrast it later in the book with uh, similar events during the First World War when when women go to work and and uh, you know listeners are familiar with the Rosie the Riveter image uh, by the Second mm-hmm. World War. The idea of women participating in war work is, is well accepted, and there's an understanding this is different from from ordinary times, and there's an amount of risk involved. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. But right. they're trying not to do. They're trying to maintain the uh, normal set of gender relations in, in the Civil right. War. Right. Uh, right. Well, yeah, and, and even with it, you know, if you think about, I, I always think about the Rosie the Riveter image is kind of at the same time suggesting this, you know, um, exceptional moment when we need women, you know, to 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 muscle up and you know to do the the hard work of making war. But at the same time. You know, she she her lipstick is perfect, and her you know mascara is perfect, and she, in some ways, it's oh you know her image is always supposed to contain the potential for this to be a long term change. You know, it's it, even her image suggests it's it's a temporary na- a temporary change or a temporary situation, even if in in the end it doesn't turn out to be temporary. Um, um, but this is you know it, it, for 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 uh, Civil War Americans, this is you know something that they don't have direct references to, or they have fewer direct references to. Yeah, and they, and they do indeed see it. It certainly is temporary. Yes. We're going to take another short break now, and we'll be back in just a moment talking more about the Army at Home, women and the Civil War in the Northern Home Front. 
with Judy Giesberg. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Almost every small town in New England and the upper Midwest has a Civil War monument. You can't swing a cat in the South without hitting a Confederate monument. And there are monuments to Confederate women as well. But where are the monuments to Northern women? Why aren't they there? We'll find out when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. My husband and I, we met at a strip mall dance. He was 20, I was 17. It was a beautiful strip mall built by my grandfather after he'd emigrated from Holland to be a farmer. Anyway, when I saw my husband at that dance, I realized I'd seen him before at a big rally at the highway on-ramp. For all the men who had enlisted, he was going to war. Two weeks later, he left for basic training. Oh, I cried my eyes out that day. His train left the car dealership. But we rode to each other every day. I rode my bike the ten miles to the high rise each morning, just so I could meet the mail when it got there. Four years later, he came home to me, and we married at the little convenience store downtown. When we lose a historic place, we lose a part of who we are. To learn how you can help protect places in your community, visit nationaltrust.org. History is in our hands. A message brought to you by the National Trust for Historic Preservation and the Ad Council. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Judy Giesberg, history professor at Villanova University, about the Army at Home, Women and the Civil War on the Northern Home Front, her book that talks about the different experiences of working-class women, uh, the ones who didn't leave memoirs, diaries, journals for us to trace their experiences with uh, people like uh, the widow Bixby, uh, recipient of the famous letter from Abraham Lincoln, or the women who worked at the Allegheny Arsenal that blew up on September 17, 1862. Um, Judy, as we were discussing earlier, one of the themes in the book is how war puts people in in different places uh, than they normally would be. Uh, You were contrasting uh, at one point, you're saying how people at the time contrasted northern and southern women's attitudes, uh, whereas uh, northern women were appropriately... Uh, quiet and, and apolitical, uh, other than to be silently loyal. The mm-hmm. uh, Southern women were, were, were criticized in Northern newspapers for uh, first for, for the way they pushed and prodded uh, Southern men to go to war uh, for them, as it were. 
And then uh, uh, their response uh, to the hardships of war and things like the, the Richmond Bread Riot, uh, or riots when, when women take to the streets and, and act out their uh, economic and political needs. Northern women weren't supposed to do that, but uh, you show in your book, uh, in the New York City uh, draft riot, women were present. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and, uh, and not just in New York, um, but also um, draft resistance in Boston um, and, and, you know, in the anthracite um, coal fields of, of Pennsylvania and other rural communities throughout Pennsylvania. Um, there, there certainly was a, um, you know, there wasn't sort of one definition of, of, of you know, of, of, of women's behavior during the war in the North, just like there wasn't in the South. So w- women do uh, resist. There was a, a, an attempt to en- enforce loyalty on, on women, at least uh, certainly those who worked in northern, uh, in government uh, factories like the arsenals. Uh, right, uh, right. Yeah, absolutely. There's, um, uh, I mean, it, interestingly, um, uh, the timing is, is I think, fascinating. Um, that in, in, in Philadelphia there's the Schuylkill Arsenal, which is one of the, um, uh, an important arsenal in production of, of army uniforms, um, and uh, just within days of, of you know the in, in incredibly violent r- riots in New York City, the draft riots in New York City, um, the uh, arsenal in Philadelphia um, decides that it's going to um, enforce loyalty among. Um, it's many hundreds of seamstresses who've been sewing at that arsenal, some of them for years before the war, um, decide they're going to, 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 to let the women go and then rehire the ones who can prove their loyalty. Um, and uh, it, it suggests, you know, an, an, an attempt on the part of Philadelphians to, um, and the, on the part of, you know, Army personnel in Philadelphia, in particular, uh, George Crossman, who was in charge of the uh, arsenal, to, um, to ensure that women... You know who 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 didn't understand the rules about proper uh, uh, loyal behavior would be held accountable for it, um, and it's, it's startling to me to think of the timing. You know, and at the precise moment when these you know kind of urban areas are exploding in violence, the, uh, in, in Philadelphia they decide to lay off all these women workers, um, uh, and you know the women don't respond by burning any buildings or starting. There are no you know parallel draft riots that occur in Philadelphia, but the women do respond to this attempt on the part of, of, of the arsenal employees to enforce their loyalties. Um, and, you know, they try to, they, they, uh, launch a petition campaign. They, uh, try to negotiate their way around the, this, um, loyalty, uh, order that's handed down. And, and, uh, the, well, this intersection of, of the loyalty uh, of, of the women and uh, uh, the traditional roles that they'd been expected to fill also comes up in in connection uh, with race, a whole other uh, yeah. issue, certainly. Right, but the, right. the participation of, of black soldiers in the war, to some extent, opens doors 
right. uh, for, for, for changes. Talk a little bit about that. Right, right. Um, it, in a couple of ways, um, uh, in, 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 the, in, the, in, the, in the Schuylkill case, um, a group of African-American women apparently applied to, um, from what I can tell, applied to um, uh, the Union League in Philadelphia for assistance uh, with getting employment at the arsenal, which I think is is an interesting. You know, the timing is kind of interesting there at the moment when Philadelphians are kind of scrutinizing um, working class women's loyalties, working class white women's loyalties, African American women um, see this as a possible moment as, uh, for them um, to get into these, this arsenal work, which is, in, you know, was, was work was important to support their families. But there's also a larger um, uh, example that I talk about in the book, and that's. Um, uh, women working, uh, women of color working uh, in a variety of capacities for uh, uh, United States colored troops, um, raising money or um, providing medical care um, uh, for the troops in, in Philadelphia, um, use the moment of the war to push the issue of, um, of getting access to the city's streetcars. Um, and, and launch um, a spirited campaign, really, to uh, force the streetcar companies in Philadelphia to allow black women and black men uh, to ride in the cars. Um, uh, and this is, of course, a campaign not launched just by women, men, uh, um, African-American men in, in the city of Philadelphia are, are, you know, running a parallel campaign. Octavia uh, Caddo um, is... Uh, um, a veteran, a USCT veteran, um, once he returns from the front, will will lobby in Harrisburg for a change of the laws. Um, but the uh, the women that I talk about in this chapter are um, actually getting on the streetcars um, and uh, ignoring the segregation rules, um, and and then being forcibly dragged off, sometimes uh, roughed up along the way, uh, and then they're taking these cases to court, um, and and it's. And even more interesting to me was to find that this, Philadelphia wasn't the only place this was happening. This was happening also in in uh, San Francisco. Um, there were women who were defying uh, the segregation orders in in New York. Uh, similar um, efforts underway. Well, or similar examples of women doing the same thing in Cincinnati as well. Um, so there is um, uh, there seems to be some sort of sense among you know uh, black women's community groups that. The war work they're doing for the black soldiers should be rewarded with at least, you know, access to the city in a way that the streetcars would 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 offer. And, and uh, you know, a theme that that I mean, it comes up again and again in American history that war has this unintended effect. Uh, the service of the black soldiers in the Civil War, then the uh, uh, the same thing happening in the world wars, especially the Second World War. The uh, absolutely yeah. uh, service there contrasted with the uh, the or the segregation of soldiers contrasted with the ideals for which the United States was supposedly fighting uh, certainly influenced the uh, civil rights movement that follows shortly afterward. Right. The uh, uh, well, in in all these cases, uh, uh, again, we see people using not intentionally necessary, but but using the war. And its circumstances to affect what um, uh, what they're doing. One of the ways that I found really shocking, maybe it's not the word, but the uh, your, your chapter on, on the efforts of women to retrieve the bodies of their 
their soldiers, their, their right. husbands or, or, or fathers or brothers, right. Right. Um, that, that there was very little done institutionally to help them do this uh, uh, or on a private basis so that right. if you're trying to bring a, a coffin home from the front, uh, in, instead of being given some government aid or, or just private uh, generosity, people are being forced to buy tickets for themselves and a ticket for the coffin. Uh, right. uh, the, it, it seems awfully callous. Uh, yeah, yeah, this was... Um, th- this, um this chapter was, um, you know, I, I, I thought was, you know, the, um, the, the stories that I discovered in, in the archives uh, that became this chapter, I thought were, um, you know, the, 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 the really sort of, hum- this sort of human element of, of, of this experience uh, really came home to me as I was reading about these women. Um, and, and the way I've, I, I found them um, is because there's, you know, in, in Pennsylvania, Governor Curtin, um, Launched a program where he we, he offered to pay pay you know to reimburse these women who uh, and and men um, family members any family members who wanted to go out and 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 retrieve bodies of Pennsylvania soldiers could be reimbursed by the state. Um, so he um, then news came out in the newspapers and and um, uh, and I think in, interestingly there had been letters written to him before this where women were asking you know is there is there any state money. Available for for family members who want to go and retrieve their bo- retrieve bodies, and then eventually there was, and so the you know the the sources are then you know a uh, result of this um, program because then women would then write to Curtin describing what it was that they did to go you know giving their sort of itinerary how they went managed to uh, go into the um, battlefields and 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 find bodies, and in most cases not you know in many cases of course not find them came back with nothing. Um, but these uh, letters that women wrote to the governor or had somebody else write to the governor in which they described the, 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 the process were really heartrending, I thought. Um, and this is where, you know, as you suggested earlier, Jerry, that, you know, you have to, it takes a, a leap of imagination, maybe not too big of one, to kind of imagine what these trips would be like for these women because what we get in the letters they write to the governor are just, you know, um, I, so then I, you know, I took a train, um, and the train cost this much, and then, you know, I hired a coach, and, and then, of course, I had to get the coffin. I had Somebody had to make a coffin for me, and, um, and then, you know, and then you have to, and then you sort of read further into the letter, and you find the woman was traveling with a small child, a baby, an infant maybe, and then, then you have to, to kind of imagine what that trip would have been like, you know, spending a couple of weeks really traveling um, with a small child in, you know, in, in a place that was just recently a battlefield um, uh, and traveling along railroad lines in many cases in the South that had been destroyed or compromised and trying to patch together this experience was, um, was uh, you know, something that I, I really struggled with it in that last chapter, but I thought was was worthwhile at least trying to imagine how, how solitary those trips might have been for these women. Um, Without trying to minimalize it in, in any way, just uh, uh, travel today is hard enough, um, yeah. uh, flying uh, around the country or, or, or in other ways without uh, the burden uh, of bringing family members and the idea of traveling to retrieve right. uh, the body of a loved one and, and under these conditions. It really is quite... Uh, uh, evocative. Now, I asked uh, 
again, during the interval here uh, to the audience, why why no memorials to northern women the way there are to southern women? Um, right. And then uh, as our time is starting to run short, what what do you think of that? Why Why aren't there great monuments to the loyalty of northern women in the Civil hmm. War? Yeah. Um, you know, it's uh, that's a that's a big mystery, and I, and I would say, you know, um, I mean, in part, it's you know the the kind of um, the, the the story of you know the side that that lost is some you know sort of a compelling story about how these women gave up everything and and you know and then and you know and were rewarded with only with these kind of you know with the men who returned home that the kind of um, uh, appealing nature of the lost cause, I think, is I, I, I think did not stop in the north. I think there was some appeal to that in the south. And I mean, excuse me, in the south, and there was some appeal uh, uh, for this kind of lost cause um, ideology in the north as well. I think also part because, um, as I suggest in the book, I think that um, the stories, at least that I found in the north, are are stories of women who are dealing with a war that looks very different. Uh, than we imagine uh, the war to look, and it's a little bit more unsettling. I mean, how does one erect a monument to these arsenal workers when, in fact, nobody ever wanted them working at the arsenals? It, it, um, it's not a part of uh, a longer story, perhaps, that people want to recall. Right, right. Uh, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. And we'll have to stop there. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but I want to thank you very much for being on the show today. And thank you, Jerry. This was fun. Wonderful. And listeners, I want to thank you for listening. Get a copy of Judy Gatesburg's book, Army at Home. And thank you again for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.